We'll watch it one more time. We'll relive it. And this will be the last time I'll watch it for a while because I've been showing it to people because it's been on my mind. So. Nope, Dawson, you're gonna have to do it again. What? You're gonna have to do it again. Okay. I missed it. I'll do it again. <laughs> I usually forget, and you probably did too, that tomorrow is Leap Day. It only comes around every four years, and if you're a fan of 30 Rock, you know that what you do on Leap Day doesn't count. Well, not actually, but it got me thinking about risk-taking, the kinds of people who live with reckless abandon and why they do it. I'm your host, Hannah Boone, and today we'll explore all kinds of leaps, some of them dangerous, others noble, but I quickly realized not every leap of faith has a perfect landing. From Bloom, from, uh, again, live, live, what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is, this is, this is American Student Radio. Real chill, real chill, aliens, conspiracy journalism and lesbians uh this is sophia salaby um i'm a sophomore here at the university so tell me a little bit about this leap of faith that you made well i guess this had to have been between my junior and senior year of high school maybe during my senior year uh, my friends and I went to a local lake. Uh, her, one of my friends had a boat, so we went out. And during it, somebody was like, hey, let's go jump off a cliff into the water. Like, there's like a special place we can go. It's like fine. And like, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. Like, I don't mind it. I get really nervous when riding roller, co- like in the line for roller coasters, but then jumping off, it's okay. So we're at the lake, we're on the cliff. Uh, we're all, everybody else goes, and then it's me. And I'm like standing over the water and I jump and you're supposed to jump like a pencil it's something to do with like hitting like breaking the water tension in like one place and my stomach flipped halfway through and that didn't happen yeah like when you're going down a big hill when there's not gravity like you kind of like get the I don't know it's like it's not butterflies but like anytime when you're going down a roller coaster the first big drop it's that same feeling and I like it was so quick and it freaked me out because you expect to hit the water, then you don't hit the water, and then you do. So that's what happened. <laughs> okay. So what you're gonna what you're gonna what you're gonna hear is um, my friend's dad is filming, and they're all waiting for me to jump. I have to do it again. You have to do it again. I missed it. Oh. <laughs> that hurts every time I watch it. Oh man. What you don't see because this video cuts off because the dad went and got me. Uh, I can't. I come up screaming. <laughs> My friends are laughing at me because it's it's comedic. Uh, and there's all these boats that are around and they're all staring at me because I'm screaming. And I'm just like, I'm just gonna flip for a while. Um, were you screaming because of the pain or because of like the shock? I think both. Like I remember like being in the water because like you go down and then you come up and like it it was just dark and then like everything like n- like my legs just hurt and I come up and I'm like <sighs> like it's it's I didn't even control it like it wasn't like it was totally uncontrollable. Like it's not something where I was like, "Oh, I can suck this up." It just happened. I was bruised on my butt for like two weeks, like purple, like purple and blue. It was really bad. So definitely during those two or three weeks when it was bruised, it was a thing. I don't know why I did. Like, like, like irrational people don't do these things. The funny thing is, is that right after I hit the water, the adrenaline hit, like because it was delayed reaction. So right after I was like, one day I will come back. I will I will jump off a cliff. I will prove you guys I won't do it again. And at this point, that's worn that's worn off uh well and uh I probably wouldn't do it again. So this is like the literal representation is if your if some of your friends asked you to jump off a cliff, would you? And I did and I regretted it. <laughs> that's my yeah, that's my leap of faith. 2016 is a leap year, meaning this month we have an extra day tacked on at the end. The leap day synchronizes our Gregorian calendar with the actual solar year. Basically, it keeps our seasons in place. 
The chances of being born on leap day are only one in 1,500. In this next story, Sarah Panfil introduces us to one of these lucky leapers. Do you know your birth story? I know the winter that I was born, like especially February in like the New England area was like one of the worst winters up to date, like even today. My mom said that my dad fainted in the like labor room or whatever, the hospital room. Um, It very well could be a flat out lie. My mom just like making my dad sound bad. Fainting dad in a rough winter. And you were born. (laughs) There I was. Every four years, there's an extra day in February known as Leap Day, February 29th. Why is it there? And who are the forever young people born on the day that only exists as often as people graduate from high school or college? I went to a local source for answers. Hi, my name's Jamie Louie. I was born on February 29th, 1996, which is a leap year. So you're going to be turning how old this, what is that, this Sunday? This or Monday. This Monday. Yeah. Technically, I th- mm, five, but actually 20. I've been on this earth for 20 years. <laughs> I've always celebrated it on February 28th. When I was little, I just thought that March was a really boring month, so I wanted to be kept within February. Can you remember each of your actual birthdays, like actual February 29ths? I remember my eighth birthday was actually cool. My mom had a bunch of kids at Walman Rink, which is an ice skating rink in Central Park, and I had, like, all of my little homies there. But they said on, like, the loudspeaker, like, happy birthday, Jamie Louie, come inside for, like, birthday stuff. And I just didn't know, like, that's how the world worked. You could get people to announce your name in public settings. Has it been different for you to be born on a leap day at all? Has it affected you much? Not really. Like, you get those jokes from time to time for, like, oh, hi, you'll never be able to drink or, like, you'll never be able to buy a lottery ticket. Other than that, you some people are like, whoa, I never knew that people actually were born that day. Does it make you feel special or unique at all? I mean, sure. It's like you're one out of 365 times four, whatever that number is. So like just by luck a little bit. It's rare and, yes, lucky enough that there's even a group online, the Honor Society of Leap Year Day Babies, that celebrates this select percentage of people, known as leaplings or leapers. Jamie doesn't like this term, but she's still one of them, along with rapper Ja Rule and Pope Paul III. Astrologers believe people born on February 29th have unusual talents, such as the ability (laughs) to burp the alphabet or paint like Picasso. Do you have any unusual talents? Unusual talents. Okay, let me think for a second. Um, I don't know. Do you believe in any of this stuff? Like, I... No. Not really, to be honest. I mean, me neither. But, like, at the same time, it's, like... It's nice to hope. It's nice to imagine. Maybe. Everyone wants to think they're special. Do you feel like you're lucky? Oh, I don't want to say... No, knock on wood. Oh, my God. I don't know. I can't answer that question because if I do and I say yes, I'll jinx it and then, like, I'll have bad luck. So what about the practicality of a leap year? Was it easy to understand that she'd only have a real birthday every four years? Um, I think I understood it pretty clearly. There is this rhyme I've I think you might know it. That's like November half 30 days, something all but all but February half 28. You Wait, know? what? What is this? Well, yeah, will you look it up for me? Yeah, okay. So January half. But maybe just like February rhyme 28 days. February. I never say that right. Ah, 30 days half September. Okay. Oh my gosh. Have September, April, June, <laughs> and November. All the rest have 31. Except for February, which has 28 or 29 in okay. each leap year. You made it sound so ugly, computer. That is not how it goes. <laughs> Eventually, we found a song we both liked. Enjoy this educational tribute to leap year, all you leaplings who get forgotten. And for the rest of us who forget why we have an extra day every four years in February, maybe this will help you remember. Check, check, one, two, listen. 
year The length of a year is hard to make clear Cause one in every four years is a leap year The common years happen three in a row They have 365 days, you know Then a leap year comes with an intercalary That's the name of the extra day in February That's why leap years have 366 days And my February's number of days can change January, March, May, July for American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sarah Panfill. When we think of a leap of faith, we often think of someone jumping off to the unknown, to a new job or a new home. But Sophia Salbi brings us the story of IU sophomore Humam Youssef, who's actually taking a big risk by going back home to the Middle East. It was a summer afternoon in Damascus, and Humam Youssef was on a picnic with his family outside the city. So we'd drive up to the top of the mountain, and it'd be like a beautiful view over the city of Damascus at night. Um, we'd always, you know, have our sandwiches, we'd get you know, the blanket out, we'd sit there, it'd be really nice weather, and it'd just feel amazing, we'd all be ha- happy. And then I remember once I just looked up, and I, I think I was probably around, probably around like nine years old. I look up and I see a big billboard of the president's father um, just there and it being like some Arabic writing. I can't remember what it said. It's probably like, you know, you know, Syria, the great country, something like that. And I just turned to my mom. I don't know why I was thinking about this at the time, but I just turned to my mom or my aunt and I say, why am I not allowed to say anything bad about the president? That was the first time Humam realized there was a difference between his home in Syria and his home in the U.S. My relatives, when they explained it to me, it wasn't my mom. I think it was my aunt, who I'm very close with. Um, she just sort of turned to me and said, here in Syria, things are not like they are in America. You can't say these kinds of things or you'll go to jail. And I was like, well, I hear you guys saying it all the time at home, you know. He's like, yeah, that's at home when no one's listening. You can't go around saying this in, in public. So it was just blunt. It was just like, it's not that way over here. That's just not the way it is. Humam was born in the United States, spent his childhood in Syria, and then moved back to the U.S. during elementary school. After that, he and his family would spend every summer with his grandparents in Damascus. I never spent a year of my life up until the recent events where I didn't visit Syria at least once. So a little background. Those recent events he's talking about were a series of protests now known as the Arab Spring. It brought revolution to Libya, Egypt, Tunisia, and several other Arab countries. Many of these initial uprisings broke out against repressive governments, and the Syrian civil war began in the same way in early 2011. At the beginning, it was called the Syrian Revolution. I considered it a revolution. And then it sort of made this transformation from revolution to a war. A war that has displaced millions of Syrians, some to Europe, some even to the U.S., but most end up in refugee camps in neighboring countries, like the Zaatari camp in Jordan, where almost 80,000 refugees now live all of whom need more medical care. My entire life, I've sort of, uh, I mean, I would remember back in third grade, I knew what I wanted to do. There was never in my life a question of, you know, what do I want to be when I grew up? It was always, I want to be a doctor. That was it. Numam has worked to make that dream a reality. He recently got certified nationally as an emergency medical technician and currently works as a part-time EMT in Evansville and a pediatric medical assistant at Riley Physicians. And he just figured out how to help people from Syria. This is the sound of IU students marching in protest outside the sample gates last December. They're protesting Indiana Governor Mike Pence's decision to block all Syrian refugees from settling in Indiana. Humam was there, was inspired by Suzanne Kaumla and the story she told of her time doing humanitarian aid in Syria. She was telling of a, of a story where, I mean, she was holding the, the uh, amputated limbs of a child in her arms and seeing the terrifying looks on the children's faces and their families and uh, her feeling, feeling sort of helpless or what, what could she do um, in that situation. And then in my mind, it was like, well, I want to know what to do in that situation. And so I, that was the, the thought, like, I want to know what to do. <laughs> yeah, I might not know now, but I want to learn. And uh, that was that. 
her mom comes home a few weeks later and sees his dad watching the news. And I just sort of looked at him and I was like, and he was watching the news in Arabic on the TV. I was like, you know, I want to go. And he's like, go where? I was like, I want to go to a refugee camp and, uh, and sort of work there for the summer. He said, I was going to go in January. Uh, I said, well, can, we should go together. And he said, all right, let's do it. Mom and his dad are now in talks to go on a volunteer mission with the Syrian American Medical Society. If everything works out, they'll be going to a refugee camp in either Jordan, Lebanon, or Turkey for two weeks over the summer. SAMS has treated 1.4 million patients in Syria and in surrounding countries like Jordan and Turkey. They support field hospitals and surgical centers, as well as provide needed medical supplies and equipment to those in need. He showed me a promotional video created by the group. So this is, I think, I believe this is Jordan, actually. Let me see here. Yeah. Yeah, Zatari camp. That's the famous um, refugee camp. Um, it's massive the on the Syrian Jordan border. Has displaced millions. The UN says it's the worst humanitarian crisis in nearly 20 years. Since the spring of 2011, more than 4 million Syrians have fled their shattered country. This is the president of SAMS. We are watching a humanitarian tragedy unfold before our eyes. I know there's a huge crisis on us. She's a SAMS worker. Honestly, I feel like whatever I'll be doing, they'll probably involve some kids because, believe it or not, at the Zatari camp, they're actually like new generations of children that were born at the camp and that are probably going to be living out their beginning years there, which is incredibly sad. Um, but there are kids that, that, a lot of kids that need taken care of. Um, I hope to just be involved in really anything. Like, honestly, I would not care. Like I mentioned earlier, I would do anything there. Um, but working with kids would definitely be a privilege just because just because of the nature of, of, of these kids. I mean, Syrian kids are the most adorable, the most kind kids in the world. <laughs> Notice they have interventional cardiologists. That's pretty amazing. So these people will, will take patients who are actively having a heart attack and insert catheters into their arteries and, uh, and remove the, the, the blockages. And that's insane that they can provide this in such a place. Like, look right there, there's an angiogram. And she just, did you see the blockage? And, and she just went in and she put a stent and, and removed the blockage. Like, these services are like top of the notch services, top of the line um, medical care that are, that's being provided in this kind of camp. So I signed up to join the SAMS mission. I didn't know what to expect. See, what she just mentioned there was a big thing for me, being a passive observer. So for the past couple of years, I've just been sort of seeing things play out and talking to myself and thinking to myself about it. Um, and now I have a chance to actually do something. He'll join the ranks of hundreds of other doctors who have come over to help but it comes at a risk. Physicians for Human Rights has recorded the deaths of almost 700 medical personnel since March of 2011. I looked at a map on their website tracking attacks on medical workers, and it's a frightening amount of attacks on hospitals. Mom knows about this danger, though. You know, you're going to help Syrian people, but also there are people who want you dead <laughs> um, for helping your fellow Syrian people. Um, that is scary. Um, but I think the benefits far outweigh the risks. And he's realized there's not much separating him from those Syrians in need. There's always this thought in my mind that's going, well, what if my father didn't leave Syria? What if he chose not to leave Syria and go to medical school in the United States? What if we would have remained there? I could be these people. For Humam, the thought of not only going to the refugee camps, but going with his father to help people in need has got him counting down to when he can finally go back. It's almost like an excitement I'd get, like, school's out, I want to go, and I want to, you know, go on vacation. It's Of course, it's not going to be a vacation, but it's that same sort of excitement that would, you know, that's been keeping me up at night, or that I've been dozing off and thinking about in class. Mom doesn't know exactly what he'll be doing, but he's ready for anything. Literally anything I could do. Like, there's no task I could be given there where I'd be like, no, I'm above that. I mean, if I had to change bedpans or something, I would take, I would do that with pride. For American Student Radio, I'm Sophia Salaby. So what does the average person think about leaps of faith? 
In this week's Maybe a Stranger Knows, Sarah Panful asks strangers to share their wisdom. So the question isn't necessarily straightforward, okay? But mm-hmm. it's, it's what's worth taking a leap of faith. I know. <laughs> wow. Um, can you give me your answer? Actually, I can't answer that. Because this is Maybe a Stranger Knows. A series where I, Sarah Panfill, take through the streets of Bloomington and ask people questions that I don't have the answer to. Sometimes they're cheesy, sometimes they're complex, and they're always in theme. So this week, I'm asking strangers what is worth taking a leap of faith, a risk, a chance, and if they themselves have ever taken the leap. Let's hear what they have to say. The question is what is worth taking a leap of faith? Probably... Just say something that you're passionate about, something that you feel in your heart. As corny as it may sound, one thing that's worth taking a leap of faith is love. Love requires faith. It requires taking a chance. Uh, Probably love. It's about all I know. What is worth taking a leap of faith? Well, it's just like any risk. Coming here was taking a leap of faith. I was a high school dropout, so I I came and it worked out. What was it like to to decide to go to college? Uh, it was a horrible decision. I had to choose between family and a uh, future. So uh, a leap of faith is something that you don't know how the outcome is going to be before you take it. We'll find out in the future whether it was worth it. Hey, could I ask you guys a question? Do you have a second? The question is, what's worth taking a leap of faith? What is a what? What is worth taking a leap of faith? Uh, yeah, it actually depends on your definition of faith. For me, taking a leap of faith it has to do with confidence, just like growing your confidence. And also just, I would probably take a leap of faith whenever um, I know that someone else needs it. strength and persistence. You need to persist sometimes to have the faith or to get the faith because faith, you lost it, you gain it, you lost it, you gain it. It's a continuous struggle with yourself and with the world. Have you ever had to take a leap of faith? Once. For love? Yeah. And how did it turn out? Horrible. (laughs) You know, what's worth taking a risk? And why do people take risks? Why do people take leaps of faith? In my definition of faith, there's no choice. I have to. Have you ever had to take a leap of faith in your life? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Could you talk about it a little bit? Well, I mean, it, it didn't work out. But... I, I, I think about it a lot, actually. Um, a lot of time has passed since then, but um, that that feeling is still so vivid. You know, it hasn't it hasn't faded at all. It was worth it because the alternative, I think, is is not to live. I mean, the the alternative is is to go through life never taking chances. And to me, that's worse than that's worse than being dead. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sarah Panfill. Thanks to Business Failure, a.k.a. Joe Barry, for again contributing music to that last story. As we just heard, lots of us equate leaps of faith with love. Here's Anne's story. Hi. Are you ready to be famous? Yes. <laughs> this is Anne. Anne Berger. Or I guess Anne Stellhorn now. Just a month or two ago, Anne married the love of her life, David. Their story is kind of funny, though, and not quite the creation story that you would expect. They went to the same high school, but didn't hang out in the same crowd. I didn't pay any attention to him, didn't even think about him. I don't even really remember him. 
he was like a basketball star on the football team. <laughs> I didn't even really know it until, you know, like this year. <laughs> and But I don't know, I just never paid attention to sports. I don't care about sports. <laughs> um, didn't pay any attention to each other in high school. And then... In college, he showed up to a couple holiday parties back home, but she didn't think anything of it. He was just one of those guys that came around once in a while that she didn't totally hate talking to. Olivia, we were at some New Year's Eve party, and Olivia was looking at him, and she was like, wow, he is hot. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I was like, oh, David, he was kind of hot. <laughs> they exchanged numbers, but there wasn't a whole lot either of them could do. David moved to New Orleans to be a camera operator after film school. That's why he and Anne couldn't totally pursue the relationship like they wanted to initially. He was working on the show Scream Queens, the one on FX with Emma Roberts, if you've ever heard of it. They texted back and forth for a while. Then... And then in November, out of the blue, he sent me a text and he was like, Hey, Anne, you want to go to Vietnam? That was the text. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it said. Hey, Anne, do you want to go to Vietnam? Yeah. He's like, I know, I think he said something like, I know it's really random, but do you want to go to Vietnam? And that was basically it. And <laughs> I was thinking, like, I don't, I don't know. I was kind of um, maybe not in the best state of my personally and my relationship. So, and like, I had all this money saved just because that was something that I always wanted to do was like spend my money traveling. So I had saved it, like, hoping an opportunity like that would come up. But, like, I went to graduate school right away. I, like, wanted to get a job. Like, I just didn't feel like I had time to travel. And then when David asked me to go, I was like, this is, like, my last opportunity. I'm going to get a job, and then I'm not going to be able to take off three weeks of my life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and told her parents. Her mom thought it was a joke, and her dad wasn't too thrilled. Friends were constantly asking if she and David were in a relationship. So we were there for two and a half weeks. We, like, kind of, we talked, like, I guess we were engaged. <laughs> um, like, yeah, he was like, yeah, he was going to get me a ring when we got back. Um, and it wasn't like a romantic, like, he didn't, like, propose. It was, like, all very practical. <laughs> like, we, we just talked about it and we're like, but this is way too right. Um, it really, like, I didn't even feel like, like in love and love until I got back. I, I came home and to like be with my family over Christmas and David went to Tokyo. So he was in Tokyo for a week while I was here and um, we had talked about getting married right when we got back and I, I was just kind of like, no, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Let's wait at least until I graduate. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I got back and I was talking to my mom about it and I just, like I, I couldn't really, I mean, sure there were reasons to wait like, <laughs> just because we maybe, like, people, like, you don't know each other that well, like, blah, blah, blah. But um, I came back and I FaceTimed him, and I was just kind of like, maybe we should just do it. Um, David had already wanted to do it right away. Um, so, of course, he was just like, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. And, you know, my family was home. My brother was home from Boston with his wife, and um, all my friends were there. Yeah, we, I planned a wedding in four days, <laughs> and we just did it. Unless I knew them like really well, like knew them for like four years. Well, <laughs> oh my god! But it just felt like I know it's it's so silly, but it's like all of the all of the things that people say, and it's really corny. Like, oh, when when you know, you know. <laughs> That's why people write love songs. <laughs> like all of that really silly stuff. It just kind of like all of a sudden made all of this uh, just made sense. <laughs> so. I, I was just like, why would I wait? <laughs> we got married on New Year's Eve. We just threw it together really easy. We just, like, ran to the florist, like, the day that I decided. 
like even before I talked to him because I knew that he wanted to do it anyway <laughs> even before I got a chance to talk to him because he was like on the other side of the world sleeping he <laughs> 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 was a florist <laughs> and um, we just took it all up to my lake cottage <laughs> did it <laughs> my uncle married us um, everything just worked out a little too perfectly like it was just right <laughs> And then did you, uh, so what happened after this? So you guys are married and then do you guys like go on a honeymoon? Because you basically just came back from one. We just came back from like the most romantic vacation in the world. So um, we both came back to St. Louis and he stayed here with me for about a month. And now he's back in New Orleans, just kind of like getting things settled. We got an apartment. Even just talking about him and like your whole experience. (laughs) You were such a newlywed. I know. <laughs> I feel like it's so much more fun because it's not only like my newlywed, I'm in a brand new relationship. <laughs> That's true. So like all the fun little things you find out about each other right away are kind of happening like in my first year of marriage. So it's been really fun. I feel so good. Like I, I don't regret anything. I don't regret the way I did anything. I just did it it just felt right <laughs> because before there was like even like love romance flirty it really was just like hanging out with my best friend so it wasn't it wasn't hard or awkward to progress towards more serious conversations I guess yeah like you guys were already um, having serious conversations from the get-go yeah like it like I just I felt comfortable sharing things with him, and he felt the same way. So, um, conversations we were having. See, that's the funny thing about it. It all happened so fast, I don't even know what we talked about that led up to us deciding, like, hey, let's get married. (laughs) This is the first time I feel like I've actually, like, sat down and told somebody everything that happened. (laughs) Yeah, how does it feel, like, recounting it for the first time then? It sounds... It doesn't even sound crazy to me. It just sounds like, yeah. I don't know. It's just, like, at first when, at first when I was telling people about it, I think that I acted more, um, like I had, like, reservations about it, or I expected people to be like, oh, you're crazy, or, or things like that, but, um, I was talking to my supervisor about it, and she was telling me about how she met her husband. And she had been single for a really long time, too. And then she met her husband, and she was, like, after the third date, she was like, I know, he's the one I'm going to marry. And in less than a year, they were married. And, like, she was just kind of, because when I told her, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I got married. Because I thought she was going to think I was crazy because I did it so fast. Like, Anne, what were you thinking? Were you thinking? But um, something that she told me, and I was just kind of like, you are so right. She was like, you just have to own it. If you show your happiness to people, they're going to they're gonna share it with you. And if they don't, then that's probably something more going on with them than it is with you. Not everyone was immediately supportive of Anne and David's yeah. relationship. It's kind of one of those situations where you kind of realize who's got your back and who is one of those. Because this is, this is a time for both of us where we're both going to start having to cut off relationships like you have less time for everybody you have like you have to focus on work you have to focus on your family because like you're moving away like your time is just more limited you can't have as many friends and I feel like this is just one of those moments where I'm really starting to see who I want in my life and I (laughs) applaud you for like you know actually recognizing the people in your life that care about you I mean because that's honestly what it is you're realizing that people that like have your best interest in mind, I guess, or, like, don't care. Yeah. It's, like, they don't care whether or not it's, like, a good or, like, you know it's a good decision for you and they trust you, I guess. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And even if they don't, you support your friends, you know? Yeah. Like, you can can have reservations and, like, you can, like, check up and make sure, like, everything, like, is okay and all of that, but you you don't need to be negative. (laughs) Or mean, or, um, you know, like, he, he was just kind of like, like, what the fuck? Like, you're crazy. What are you thinking? Like, I know. those are just not ways to communicate with somebody. Anne is my friend, if that wasn't already apparent from our conversation. And I never would have expected her to make this kind of decision. 
I know I wouldn't. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what I or anyone else thinks. I don't know, because, like, I feel like that is, like, the whole leap of faith thing is that you don't really know that much. <laughs> you just kind of do it. I know. And it works out or it doesn't, and it did. <laughs> and it's going to keep working out for you, I think. I am, like, so confident it's insane. <laughs> And I trust you, Anne. You are not one of those people to make a crazy decision or, like, not think about something. You don't know how much I appreciate it when people say things like that to me, like, or, like, support me. I'm like, oh, yes. (laughs) Team Anne married. Always. (laughs) That's all. Thanks to Bloomington-based band Hale's Corner for contributing music to Anne's story. They are currently working on their first album that's set to come out in April, and you guys should definitely check them out. You're listening to American Student Radio. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice, or on Facebook at American Student Radio, or on our website, americanstudentradio.org. Leaps of faith often involve taking risks or doing something you never thought you would. So, we asked IU students if they were risk takers or risk avoiders. Um, I feel like I'm a risk taker because there's a lot more reward in the end if you take a risk. I don't know if I can say this on the radio, but I'm about 10 shots deep, but... (laughs) I have felt too many benefits from avoiding risks. That's why I continue to avoid risks. I'll take the risk, forget the fall, because in the end I'm going to have it all. Typically, I'm a risk avoider um, just because I've made so many mistakes in the past that I've really regretted. Being a risk taker is a lot more, um, it adds a lot more adventure to your life. So not maybe, maybe not like physical risks then. No, 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 no. Yeah. Right. Unless it comes to hard drugs, in which case I just roll the dice, you know? Yeah, I'm kind of the same. Are you a risk taker or a risk avoider? I'm an avoider. Why? Because I'm not, I'm not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to take that risk sometimes. Next up is another story from The Entanglement, a podcast about relationships from juniors Alex Daly and Danny Costanzo. In this episode, they interviewed a student who took a leap of faith with her then-boyfriend after she transferred from a university in Los Angeles to IU. Today, we're adding Carly and Derek to The Entanglement. I didn't finally decided to transfer until less than a month before school started. So it was unexpected. I called him and I was like, hey, I'm moving away in a couple weeks, so we'll never see each other That's again. That's not what you said. She called me and she said, hey, I like, I was waiting. I wasn't sure if I should tell you, but this like, this really affects your life too. So I figured I should probably tell you, but I was waiting until it was 100% for sure. And I was like, oh my God, she's pregnant. <laughs> and then she said, I'm moving to Indiana. And my first thought was, oh my God, she's pregnant. My second thought was, oh my God, she's moving to Indiana. So I moved. And we decided, like, immediately, like, we're going to break up. Like, there's, we weren't, like, that serious before I moved. So there was, we didn't even discuss doing long distance. Um, I think we were both a little sad, but it wasn't, like, the end of the world. We just I mean, we cried up. a lot. But, but, I mean, we cry a lot. She cries a lot, and I had allergies that week. When we were both on different sides of the country and we were not together, we both made Tinder profiles. And mine was, I like beer, baseball, and country music. So if you like any of these things, let me know. And mine was studying football, whiskey, and country music. Those are similar We obviously things. didn't match on Tinder because we didn't live in the same place. But we would have matched on Tinder because we like similar things. We totally would have. I decided to come back to LA in November to visit like all my friends that were there. And I was like, I mean, I need somewhere to stay. And he said I could stay with him. Only out of convenience. Hotels are really expensive strictly, in Los Angeles. Strictly out of convenience. And it turned out to be just like old times. So we tried to break up and it didn't work. We didn't try very hard though. We tried a little bit. It didn't really work out though. So I guess we kind of started talking again. Yeah. Um, we were always talking a little, though. Yeah. And then, I guess, that went on for the entire school year. And then, over the summer, I took a big step. So she came out to visit me for 4th of July. And I flew out to Indiana for another weekend. 
and we went camping together. Little did I know she hates camping. Her whole family knows she hates camping. And I was just staying at her house and like not, we weren't able to share the same bed. So she wanted us to go camping. My dad thinks that like I'm a total wimp. And he was like, you guys are going to wimp out. You're not going to last the whole night camping. And uh, we were like, no, we're going to do this. It's going to be super fun. And then as soon as we get our tent set up, it starts pouring rain and storming. And there was lightning everywhere. And I was really scared of a tree falling on our heads. So we packed up our, our camping things and ran out through the torrential downpour to get back into the car. And we realized that we got the wine. It was very <laughs> dramatic because it was raining a lot and whoever went out was almost definitely gonna get wet, maybe even slip and get muddy. As I started to open the door, I turned to her and I said, babe, wish me luck. I love you. And I ran out <laughs> and I got about 10 steps before I realized what I'd said. And I turned around and I went back and I opened the door and said, I really, 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 really like you. And I slammed the door and ran under the tent. <laughs> the worst thing I've ever said. But later that night, I told her that I really did love her. And I haven't taken it and back since. I was like, since. no shit, baby. Because I knew. I mean, we weren't exclusive until like a couple months ago. I think both of us felt like if you can't see each other more than every couple months, then it hurts more to resent them in the long run for things that you're missing out on. And it was, it was a little weird. I think we were both really transparent with each other about it, which helped. For me, the decision was really clear after I took this one girl to an invite who I didn't <laughs> like that much. I was like, is this what I'm like not happy with Carly for? Like, this is stupid. Like, why would I kiss someone else's face when I can kiss her face? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's not what makes it worth it. It's like, why would you not? Like, why would I give this up? We talk probably more about the future than most people do. I think it's part of just we're both long-term planners. And when you're in a long-distance relationship, you don't get to think about the present as much. So you spend a lot of time thinking about the future. But we've talked a lot about getting married and if we do that and having kids. And we've also talked about rings. And she'll bring up from time to time well, a couple years ago when we were in LA, I was coaching a little league team. We had a really good season besides that we lost all of our games. But at the end of the year, we had a team party at Chuck E. Cheese and I brought her to it. We gave most of the tickets to the kids. And the one thing I bought when she wasn't looking was I bought a little plastic spider ring. We were walking out, we were going past the Chuck E. Cheese, in front of the Chuck E. Cheese where like all the kids could see, but I wasn't thinking about that. I just got down on one knee and I pulled out the spider ring and she looks at me like, what the hell is he doing? And I said, Carly, will you do me the honor of watching the Shawshank Redemption with me tonight? Because that was the movie we were going to watch that night. And she just looked at me and she's like, you're an idiot. <laughs> she took the ring and wore it for like two weeks. Immediately after we graduate, we're planning on taking a big two-month-long road trip around the country. We're going to take his parents' van and drive around. Texas, New Orleans, Indiana, of course, Rushmore, Yellowstone, Panhandle, and Idaho. Get to spend the time that we kind of missed out on by living long distance for the last two years. I'm applying to grad school right now, and... I'll be working in LA. So we're kind of trying to make those decisions together. So nothing's set in stone at this point, but we're crossing our fingers and doing our best. You just heard Carly and Derek's story. For American Student Radio and The Entanglement, I'm Alex Daly. And I'm Danny Costanzo. Past episodes of The Entanglement can be found on the podcast SoundCloud page. If you want to share your relationship stories, email iuentanglement at gmail.com. Sometimes a leap of faith is mandatory. Not taking the leap could be fatal, but also the leap itself could prove to be fatal. Eric Alexander took a leap of faith when he underwent brain surgery to remove a malignant tumor. ASR's Christopher Mawson sat down with Eric before the surgery. Eric is a Bloomington musician. He wrote and performed all the music featured in this story. Here is Forget the Mystery. They're quick to say that the brain is a mystery. I do know that I had a seizure and a near-death experience last time I went into the MRI, that it was terrifying. Um, if I were to go into seizure on the table with the doctor, it seems like I could die. Um, this doctor has a very low mortality rate for the kind of surgery, but it's still there. It's still high. You know, it's higher than walking down the road. So there's a gamble. I'm more worried, yeah, that I will die than that I will live on in a different state. Because honestly, I love changing. I love that my mind is constantly changing and I'm constantly doing new things. And this sounds like a new frontier um, and a new experience, you know, after they mess with my brain. So I'm excited about that, about life after the surgery. My only concern would be that it would end too soon and I wouldn't get to do all the things I want to do. Or that I would get to explore this new mode of consciousness. Forget the mystery. It's only gonna freak you out. Keep on dreaming. Don't even try and figure it out. Or you'll be scared. Um, when I first came into the world, I had scarlet fever and I nearly died. Um, just a couple of months after I was born, uh, I was screaming and red and had a fever and was hospitalized. And um, I feel like that was kind of my introduction to this place. And uh, with that came, you know, 
just knowledge of, of a terrible pain and separation. I guess I've always been weird condition. From the time I was always like a little kid, I felt weird or alienated, um, you know, like I didn't belong with the other kids. I spent a lot of time alone. Um, you know, when the other kids would be like playing, I would just sit alone, you know, at the campground and look at the fire and imagine things. College uh, was a little more back and forth. I was really, my first semester I had, you know, a perfect GPA and uh, worked really hard at like 21 credit hours and I was in the orchestra. I was on scholarship for music. And uh, my second semester I had a breakdown. Again, I didn't get out of bed for days and days and I skipped all my finals and I failed out on my second semester. I guess when I turned 21, uh, my alcohol consumption kind of got out of control. Yeah, I started, you know, inflicting harm upon myself more directly and more serious harm. And I guess that's the first time I heard, you know, I experienced what people would call psychosis. Um, although previously I probably had weird delusions, you know, um, that were noticeable to people. Or they just noticed that I wasn't present, that I probably had delusions of persecution, alternately with like maybe delusions of grandeur and such. But the first time I, you know, I guess like this for a lot of people, this is the litmus test for insanity. It would be the first time I heard a voice was when I was 21. During a depressive episode, uh, I was laying in bed and just heard this voice that said, don't you need a drummer or does anybody need a drummer or something like that. Um, in 2009, I started to hear voices constantly and started to constantly see things that other people couldn't see and uh, feel, you know, things touching me that other people couldn't even see in the room, uh, that sort of thing. And they went along with delusions of, like, persecution. Um, and that was, that was hellish. And that continued until today. I still do that, but now I boss them around. Um, so it's not really a problem. I've been prescribed a number of different medications that haven't really worked for me. What works for me is uh, believing in myself and trusting in myself. None of them has done what it was supposed to do. And they do other things that they're not supposed to do. So when I was on antipsychotics, I found that I was still having um, the positive psychotic symptoms, still constantly seeing things other people don't see, constantly hearing voices. Um, but I was sleeping 14 hours a day and I gained 40 pounds, which was terrible for my self-esteem. Um, to me, a better way to deal with that is to take that creative energy to be the boss and to channel it into something uh, real that I can then communicate to other people. Um, because if I just let myself be the victim of the hallucinations and also I take the medications, the negative symptoms, what they call, become more severe. Lack of socialization, um, you know, inability to function in the world, inability to connect with people, inability to communicate clearly, like things like that are more severe under the sedation of the antipsychotics. So for me, that doesn't work at all. For me anyway, the mental health system is disempowering. And a sense of helplessness or believing that somebody else can solve your problems for you uh, is really not healthy. What I hate most about mental illness and the way that it's approached in our society today, there's a stigma around it. If somebody finds out that you have a certain illness, there's like immediately it changes the way that they treat you. And they can't accept you in the moment as you are. Um, and I just don't appreciate that. Let me give an example. So check this out. I have a brain tumor. And the diagnosis of the brain tumor happened after my second time being committed to a hospital for psychosis. Now, they treated me differently because they believed I had a history of mental illness. They finally scanned my brain this past year because they said some of these symptoms don't actually vibe with psychosis and schizophrenia. It seems like you might have something wrong with your nervous system. They look at my brain and they find a brain tumor. And now that I'm seeing neurologists instead of psychologists, a lot of them are saying, a lot of these symptoms that you've had may be more related to the brain tumor than any sort of pattern in mental illness. So they're treating me as somebody who is aware, as somebody who can make conscious decisions for themselves, and I'm finally getting the treatment that I need. And if I would have had my brain scanned, if I would have been treated for a neurological illness five years ago, the tumor would be much smaller. If they would have found it then, I would have a better quality of life now and probably for the rest of my life. So that stigma colors diagnosis. And that's a shame. 
yeah, the dude is going to... The, <laughs> the dude is going to cut the skin on my scalp and peel back all that skin on my head. And then he's going to saw open my skull. And then he's going to take uh, a, a scooper and dig into my brain and scoop it out. Um, and then they're going to put that back on. I don't know how they're going to place my skull back on my head. And then he's going to pass me along to this other dude that's going to smash particles at the speed of light and shoot a singular particle beam through my effing head at specific cells that he wants to target. So that's the plan. Makes sense to me. <laughs> you can shape your mind. You can shape your mind any way you want to. You can shape your mind. You can shape your mind uh, any way you want to. There's, you know, a concern that when they take the tumor out and when I undergo radiation, it's going to change my brain and it's going to change my function. But I don't really have a choice. Like if I were to continue to let it grow and kill me, that would be insane. Um, because there's an opportunity for them to improve the quality of my life and make my life last longer. I just have to accept that and go with it. Um, I am, you know, I like playing music, but if I could be like, you know, just like have a stupid smile on my face and sit in a pasture in the sun and like, you know, that would be fine. I'm totally fine with that. I like making music, but it's, I would drop it in a second. It's not worth it. So whatever, you know, happens is fine with me. I, for, I just have this feeling that I could die in surgery and I don't want it to happen. So this like sense of like helplessness again, uh, I'm going to go on in there. I'm going to go under the knife. The thing is, I don't know that they know what they know. Um, and I don't know what they know, the experts that are engaging with my brain. Um, they're, they're quick to say that the brain is a mystery. The awful sickening weight that tells you it's too late promises only destruction. The shadows that crawl across your bedroom wall give it an instruction. I saw an angel and he said, listen up, up above your head, above your head, above your head, there is music in the air, so listen up and don't be scared. Forget the Mystery was produced by Christopher Mawson. In case you're wondering, Eric successfully made it through the surgery. In fact, it's been a year and a half since his leap of faith. After the surgery, he went through several rounds of chemotherapy treatments and radiation. Eric's now in remission. After the surgery, he experienced some trouble with speech, light sensitivity, and numbness of his right side. His recovery is ongoing, but he's playing music again under the name moniker Serdeja Dog. And last but not least, we'll leave you with goats. We will have this bonus story up for you on our SoundCloud, and some risky decisions don't happen immediately. Leaving your job and starting a goat farm, for example, takes months of discussion and planning. It isn't easy to start your own business, but four people living in Brown County have proven that they have what it takes. Taylor Haggerty has this story. Be good. <laughs> Ginger Nossi. And that one, that one with the blue eyes is one of my favorites. She has a heart on both sides. Her oh. name's Squirrel. She Aww. on both sides of her. She's, um, can you see that right there? Oh yeah. And she's got beautiful eyes. Yeah. <laughs> That's Nicole. For the past 10 years, she's been the director of Indiana University's service learning program. But this past January, she left her job to open a goat farm with her boyfriend, Mark, and their friends, Tanya and Josh. I'd been at the university for a long time, and I was looking for a job change. And one of the things that I was really interested in was having work that was maybe more directly meaningful and fulfilling than the work that I was doing. I often say I feel like I could have been replaced by a tape recorder. And I wasn't really learning anything new. Every day was different, but after a while there were repetitions in those days. It wasn't that Nicole's job was bad. She just wanted to do something else. Mark was willing to support her. You know, Nicole was talking about doing something different from the job she had at that time. I don't know exactly how goat farm. Ideas. We did toss around <laughs> a few ideas. For Tanya, this goat farm is the next step in a journey to live a more economic and sustainable life. I realized that we lived in a world that was really out of balance, and 
how can I make that better? And I realized it started with me. There wasn't much that I could do maybe to improve, but maybe I could limit the amount of waste that I was using. And that's kind of where it started. Taking that leap to simpler living has been a lot easier for her with the support of her friends and family. When they first started talking about the goat farm, Nicole wasn't sure that it would ever really happen. It probably wouldn't become a reality. It would be just something that we talk about. Wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't it be nice? Tanya felt the same way. I didn't quite take it very seriously, to be honest. I was just like, sure, that sounds great. If it actually works, I'm in. Once they started talking about it, though, it was hard to let go of the idea. They had monthly meetings to research the logistics of owning a farm. Early on, it was bringing a dream slowly into a reality, and now there's a little more reality, which is, you know, fine and still really Mm -hmm. fun, but... Yeah, we didn't know what we needed to know. Those early meetings tended to consist of the same questions. Do you really want to do this? I think that was like the big topic was that we were committed, trying to drop timelines. And then one day Josh said, why don't we get goats? Buying the goats signified what Nicole calls the point of no return. That almost felt like that was happening too fast. That kind of scared me. But then once it happened, it was like, yeah, this goat farm is going to happen. So Nicole talks about the point of no return being the time that we got two goats. And my brain, (laughs) I was thinking the point of no return for me was after that we got four more goats and then we got an additional five and then we got a buck it was we had too many goats for the current place i was at so that was the point of no return that i knew you can only fit like three goats in an apartment legally i think (laughs) mark held out a little longer he wasn't convinced that their dream was a reality until they bought the farm i don't know point of no return but it felt like completely real and it was happening once we did close on the land. As everything was falling into place, no one thought about backing out. Nicole was afraid of one thing, though. My biggest worry was that I'd be like, oh, I should have done this sooner. And Veldman said, well, if that's your biggest fear, you're in good shape. (laughs) (laughs) Nicole was never worried that the farm wouldn't work out. No one in the group was a stranger to farming. Mark's sister runs the Bloomington Farmer's Market, and Nicole and Tanya have both raised bees and even chickens together in the past. We know farmers, we know it's a lot of work, and especially when you have livestock, and especially when you're milking, and if you're milking and making cheese. And so we wanted to work with other people that we knew were similarly interested and committed. Nicole, Mark, Tanya, and Josh all worked hard to make their goat farm a reality, but they say it wouldn't have been possible without the help of the community. From family and friends to the people they purchased the farm from, everyone has been supportive of their decision. Tanya says this support is part of what keeps her going. Things like that make me realize it is meant to be and it is really what should be done. The goat farm was nothing instantaneous. Nicole says it's taken them a long time to get where they are. I would say it's been a really long, slow process. So it's not been sort of like, boom, here we are. But even when the process was just beginning, Nicole says she received a lot of support from her friends and coworkers. But I wasn't sure how it would be received. Like, is she crazy? She's leaving her job and starting a farm in Brown County. But so many people said, oh my God, this is my dream. Everyone they've talked to has expressed a love for goats and farming, something that Nicole wasn't expecting at all. They decided to call their new company The Goat Conspiracy, partially because of this phenomenon. Tanya says the name has another meaning. The greens, the hay, everything here goes back to the goats. While some people dream of living on a farm, Nicole and her friends are making it happen. It's gone well so far. He's pretty friendly, although I might have to go and herd these chickens back this way. Mm. Um, These seem to be all of our new ones. There we got about, what did we get? Everything has fallen into place so nicely here. It's been pretty amazing. We did try to make goat cheese a handful of times. Some really good, some of it. Not cheese. (laughs) It doesn't seem like work. And that's the most rewarding part is it just feels right. I love being surrounded by living things, plants and animals. And that's really what drove me to be here. Nicole and Tanya work full time on the farm. Mark is still at his day job. He says his daily life hasn't changed that much, but the farm does give him something to look forward to. It's certainly nice to come home to goats and the farm and what about the photo ops? Do you want to talk about those? <laughs> that's, that's kind of been my typical farm input. I show up for photo ops and interviews. <laughs> for these friends, taking a leap of faith doesn't mean leaving everything behind. It means moving forward into something new and exciting with the people they love. 
we all only have one life and you've got to make the life the way you want it to be. And this sort of fits in a vision that I don't know that I necessarily had before we started talking about it. You know, for us, like our jobs is more of like a stepping stone Mm -hmm. to get us to the next place. And it did good, but you know, Mm -hmm. there's always new chapters and it's, this is a new chapter and hopefully it's a big one. (laughs) Yeah, huge. This new chapter of their lives is just beginning. Nicole says they have big plans for the goat conspiracy. It's sort of the dreaming phase. We are throwing out ideas of different things that we want to do, and that list continues to grow. In Bloomington, I'm Taylor Haggerty. Thanks to all of our producers for this week's American Student Radio. From WIUX in Bloomington, I'm Hannah Boone. Tune in next week at this same time to hear Morgan Burris and Joe Weber talk about humor. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 